Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. I'm hungry. How many times have you thought that? How many times have you said that out loud? How many times have you listened as other members of your family have expressed the same sentiments? How many times on even a daily basis does that thought of hunger come to your mind? I would venture to guess, I did not do a survey or a study, but I would venture to guess that we spend more time thinking about and actually involved in food and eating than we do anything else in life other than sleep and work. So behind sleep and work, we probably think more about food and spend more time on it than anything else. We have to shop for food, which means we often have to make a list before we go to the store. We have to prepare it or go out and have someone else prepare it. And then of course, there is the actual time of eating on a daily basis, which sometimes is the least involved of all of the rest of the equation. And we have to do all of this multiple times a day and then do it all again the next day. I mean, our bodies routinely get hungry and the only way to solve our hunger is to eat. That's the way God has designed us. Our bodies need food. It is the fuel which satisfies our hunger and gives us the strength and energy that we need. And that hunger is the warning system that says we need more fuel. Sometimes Tracy will ask me while we're eating a meal. For example, we might be eating lunch. And she'll say to me, what do you want for supper? And I say, I can't think about our next meal before I finish the meal I'm eating right now, but I will, of course, have to think about it later. Now, last week we looked at Jesus' statement that he was and is the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. That is not traditionally uh, calculated as one of the I am statements, but I think it's foundational for all of the others. But this morning, we look at the first of the seven I am statements. Now, again, there are other times in the gospel where those words are found, but these seven have I am followed by a metaphor, a description of some sort and nature that tells us something about the person and work of Jesus and particularly about his saving mission toward us. We're in John chapter 6 this morning and once again we are in the middle of a dialogue. Earlier in John chapter 6, Jesus has performed one of his miracles. And I told you that that's one of the ways John gets us to his purpose of who Jesus is, is not just the I am statements, but the various miracles. And so there is a miracle in John chapter 6. You are familiar with it. It is the miracle where Jesus fed the 5,000 men along with their families with just five loaves and two fish. Now, as we enter the narrative, it is the next day. And as you might expect, the crowd is still hanging around. 
They want more. He fed us yesterday. Let's see what he'll do for us today. Now, we are going to notice in this story, at least the portion we're looking at, that while the crowd comes to Jesus, they come to Jesus with some misunderstandings. In fact, we're going to look at three different misunderstandings that they had about the person of Jesus before we look at what it means that he is life-giving bread. And because there are so many misconceptions even in our own day, it is important for us to understand not only what does it mean that Jesus is life-giving bread, but what does it not mean as well. So let's look at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22, as we see this I am statement. Verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that had remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And here it is. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, as I said last week, we are again breaking into the middle of a discussion. In fact, this is quite a lengthy discussion that goes all the way through the end of chapter 6. So we've obviously just read a portion of this dialogue, and we're not even going to be able to undermine the depths of all that is said in these verses, much less the entire discussion. 
Jesus had sent his disciples across the sea at the end of the day before. He's, he's miraculously fed the 5,000 men with their families, and then he sends his disciples across the sea. He himself, however, goes up into the mountains for some time to himself. He didn't get much of that time that night because during the middle of the night, he went to his disciples by walking on the water. Now, the huge crowd that had heard him speak and that he had miraculously fed knew nothing about him leaving the area during the night. We must assume from the text that they sort of camped out in the area or perhaps lived very closely nearby. And so the next morning, they come searching for Jesus. They had seen the disciples leave in a boat. And we can also assume that they had seen Jesus going up into the mountains alone. Therefore, they expected, as we open our text, that on the next day, Jesus would still be there. I guess they felt since Jesus had provided dinner the night before, they might as well see what he had for breakfast the next morning. Maybe they were anxious to see what he could provide for their second meal, but the only problem was they couldn't find him. Now, the natural answer must have been that another boat had come during the night and Jesus had taken that boat to the other side. That would be the most logical explanation for the fact that Jesus was gone. But this didn't really make sense either because they had not seen any boats leaving the area that night. They had seen other boats arriving from nearby Tiberias, probably to get out of the storm, but they had not seen any boats leave, and certainly it would not have been advantageous for them to do that in the midst of the storm. So they wondered where Jesus was. And since he wasn't on that side of the sea, they themselves got into boats and they crossed the sea in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side, their first question was directed at their curiosity as to how he had gotten on the other side of the sea. It certainly did not cross anybody's mind that he might have walked on the water and gone into the boat with the disciples during the night. So our story takes place as we pick it up in the city of Capernaum, which is now Jesus' hometown. In fact, in verse 59 of this chapter, it tells us that the dialogue actually took place more specifically in the synagogue in Capernaum, though we do not know exactly where in this dialogue they made their way to that synagogue. We also do not know how many of the 5,000 men from the day before have now crossed the sea whether it is the totality of that number, which is unlikely, or whether it is a smaller delegation, though still a large number. And it is during this exchange that Jesus is going to issue the first of his I am statements. He uses this phrase more than once. In fact, you'll see if you look down to verse 48, he says it again. And in verse 48, that is the entire verse. But again, before we get to the statement, I am the bread of life, we have to consider some misconceptions, not only ancient misconceptions, but contemporary ones as well. If you're in a life group, which by the way, they're, they're going back to tonight. We missed last week because of fall break, but tonight we'll start back. If you're in a life group, you know that we're in a book on the church, and we've done two chapters so far. The first chapter was what the church is not, that is, misconceptions about the church. 
The second chapter was what is the church? That is a more definition of the church. And that's essentially what I'm doing in this sermon. We're talking about life-giving bread, but before we get there, we're talking about what life-giving bread is not. So the first thing we need to recognize is that it is not the path to prosperity. They were seeking Jesus the next day, and one might think that Jesus would be happy about this. If you go back in the story in verse 15, there was actually a, a delegation that wanted to seize Jesus and make him their king. The word seeking can be good and bad. That is, you can seek Jesus as a disciple, or you can seek Jesus for harmful means. We're not told specifically, but we do know from the earlier transaction in verse 15 that they wanted to seize him and make him king. We also know that Jesus knows their hearts and thus their motives. He knew that in part they were only seeking him because he had provided food. He says that, you seek me not because you saw a sign, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They had been satisfied with dinner the night before, and now they wanted more. That is the nature of food, of course, that we always need more. But all of that was a sign, and a sign is something that points beyond itself to something of greater significance and importance. In and of itself, the sign has no value. It is only as the sign points to something else. A sign on the interstate points you in the right direction to where you desire to go, or it alerts you to danger up ahead. The sign itself is not the destination. It simply points the way. And so this crowd had witnessed a sign the night before, but they were so enamored by the sign that they failed to understand its significance. And the significance of that sign was standing right before them, and all they could see was the physical things that they had received and now that they desired. They had their eyes fixed on the material. Jesus was trying to teach them about the spiritual. There is, of course, an old saying that says, hindsight is twenty-twenty," And I guess that is true. But when I read this story, I think to myself, how could they not understand who was standing in front of them? I mean, what more do they need to see or hear to cause them to fall down and worship him? Why are they so concerned about what they're going to eat for breakfast when the Son of God is in their midst? Well, unfortunately, we haven't learned enough from all of those days. Many today still do the same thing. That is, they are still seeking Jesus as their pathway to prosperity. Many are caught up into what Jesus can provide for them, never bothering to see who he is. It is easy to see why they were seeking him. I mean, why wouldn't you want to follow someone who had the power to multiply food. You would never have to worry about another meal. You would never have to spend all of the time that I referenced in the introduction planning and preparing and fixing food if you had someone that could just meet all your needs. And there are theologies that abound today with those proclaiming what is called the prosperity gospel. They take verses out of context from Scripture and they proclaim that God desires that all of his children be healthy and wealthy. And is there not much difference between folks today who are doing that and what we see in this crowd? 
caught up with the physical and yet never seeing the spiritual, not understanding that the material or physical will never satisfy, at least not forever. Yes, it will satisfy for a while, but only Jesus can satisfy for eternity. That's what he says in verse 27. Why are you spending so much time, I'm paraphrasing, why are you spending so much time worrying about your next meal when I'm the bread of life who can satisfy you forever? To say that America is a materialistic society certainly would be an understatement. We are consumed by the material so much so that many do not see or invest in the spiritual. And yet all the material things we are working so hard to achieve will either be left to someone else, it will rot or decay or be destroyed. It cannot last forever. And when we do achieve some measure of material success, it is never enough. We always want more. And by the way, that's proof positive that the physical doesn't satisfy. The fact that you always want more and never reach a level of contentment through the material is proof positive that it doesn't satisfy forever. What we thought would satisfy no longer does, and so we work harder to achieve the next level of prosperity only to discover that that's not the answer either. And Jesus says to those who are seeking him for these things that only he can bring lasting contentment. He understood that those who sought him as a path to prosperity would never be satisfied. They would always want more. And that is why the comparison to bread is such a good comparison here. Because food does satisfy our hunger, but only for a short period of time. No matter how much you eat, you're going to have to eat again. And we've all made that claim. I've eaten so much, I don't think I'll ever eat again. And it's not but a few hours later that we're hungry and we want to eat again. I've never told this story in a sermon for two reasons. Number one, it's embarrassing. And I like to look good in my illustrations rather than bad. And number two, the, the subject matter is maybe not appropriate. It might get your minds onto something else and throw off the rest of the sermon. But I'm going to risk it and tell this story. When I was a senior in college, my... Uh, Senior year, I was a youth pastor at a local church. The senior adult group in that church invited me to go out to eat with them. Now, I lived off campus, so I wasn't on the meal plan. I didn't make a lot of money at that church. So when the senior adults invited me to go out to a local seafood buffet with them and said they were going to pay, I signed up. And I got in the van and went with them to the restaurant. And I did what I often do at buffets. I ate like I was never going to get another meal. I ate and I overate. So much so that for the first and only time in my life, I ate so much it made me sick. Literally. So I got up from the table and made my way to the restroom. The only problem was I didn't make it to the restroom. I got sick in the foyer of the restaurant where there were many people waiting on their table. Yeah, I told you it was embarrassing. But after that, I felt fine. We got in the van to go home, and the senior adults kept saying to me, now, if you need to pull over, just let us know. If you're feeling sick again, we're happy to pull over and let you get sick. 
what they didn't understand was that I felt I could have gone back to the buffet for that matter. I felt fine because I didn't have a stomach bug. I had a lack of self-discipline. I ate too much, but then I was going to have to eat again later. That's the nature of food. It satisfies, but only temporarily. But Jesus is the bread of life that satisfies forever. Now, the second thing we notice is that Jesus is not the way of works. Look at the question they ask in verse 28, a question that people are still asking today. What must we do to do the works of God? It is human nature to want to do something to earn our salvation. We just can't seem to grasp the idea that salvation is by grace through faith and has nothing to do with us working our way into a relationship with God. And part of the reason we struggle with that is because many other religions teach different things. That is, they teach that there are works that must be performed in order to have a right relationship with God. And yet the Bible says very clearly that it is not something we can earn or deserve. The Jewish religion of Jesus' day was a legalistic religion. That is, they had a set of laws, not only the ones written in the Bible, but a bunch of oral laws as well that one must do in order to be right with God and other things that one must avoid in order to be right with God. And keeping these rules, obeying them, would grant you favor with God. It wasn't about a relationship with God. It was about following the rules. Now here too, little has changed since Jesus spoke these words. We still have plenty of people who believe that if they do the right things and avoid the wrong things, they will be right with God. They may not have written rules as the Jews did, but they have rules in their head. Some of these rules are passed down from generation to generation. Some of these rules are different for different people and different generations. But many of us know what some of these rules are. And sometimes I think it would have just been easier to understand Christianity if we just had a list. If we just had a list that said, here's all the things you have to do, here's all the things you have to avoid, and if you want to be a Christian, you got to check off this list and avoid that list. But that's not what we have. What we have is a personal relationship with Christ. Now, that does not mean that there are not laws, that there are not commands, that there are not things to avoid and things to do. It simply means that our relationship with Jesus Christ governs all of that as revealed in his word. So I want you to see Jesus' answer to this question. Verse 28, they ask him, what must we do to do the works of God? Now notice Jesus' answer. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Notice that the word work in Jesus' answer is singular. In their question, it is plural. What are the works that we have to do? Jesus says there's only one work, and the work you have to do is to believe in him. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you don't have to do anything after salvation, as so many seem to think. Rather, what it means is that the thing necessary for salvation, the one work, if you want to call it that, necessary for salvation is to believe in Jesus and trust in his finished work on the cross. Because as we'll see shortly, life-giving bread for salvation is not by works, but through faith in Christ. And when you're finished with a meal and you go out to a restaurant, sometimes the waiter or the waitress will come over 
And he or she will say, is there anything else I can get you? And sometimes you will say, no, nothing except the bill. That's the worst part of going out to eat, right? Because now that you've enjoyed the meal, now you have to pay the bill. Although occasionally, and it happened to us a couple of weeks ago, we got done with our meal and the waitress came over and she said to us, you are free to go. Someone else has paid your bill. We had talked with a couple who were members of this church. When we got there, we saw them at another table. They were finishing up about the time we got there. And apparently they talked to our waitress and paid our bill before they left. Now, I do not say that so that you might do the same if you see me in a restaurant. You'll miss the point if that's what you think. I am saying that to say when we feast on life-giving bread, there is no bill. It is not by works, but it is by grace through faith. Now, the third thing I want you to see is Jesus is the bread of life. He is not a show of signs. So after Jesus told them that the work of God was to believe in him, they demand that he show them a sign so that they would be convinced that he was indeed the one sent from God. It's hard to believe that they wanted more proof of who he was. Again, they had just seen him the day before miraculously feed 5,000 men plus their families. Had they asked the disciples, which I think they probably did, when Jesus didn't ask, answer their initial question about how did you get here, I sort of assumed they might have asked the disciples. Even if they didn't ask the disciples, the disciples probably would have told them. And had they gotten that information, they would have had three more miracles since the feeding of the 5,000. Those miracles are Jesus walked on water. When he got into the boat, the storm ceased. And when he got into the boat, the boat was immediately at the other side of the sea. So there were four signs, if they knew it, in the last few hours that they had. And yet here they are asking for another sign. They were well-versed in the signs that God had given to their ancestors. They knew all about how God had supplied manna for 40 years while their forefathers wandered in the wilderness. Now, if, uh, now, if God is truly going to meet their needs, he needs to do something of this nature. They're not going to be overly impressed with Jesus feeding them one time I mean, if he's claiming to be as great or greater than Moses, remember last week, he was clearly claiming to be greater than their father Abraham. So if he's claiming to be greater than Moses, then he needs to do something at least on par with what Moses did. And Moses fed them for 40 years. One meal is not going to impress. Now Jesus steps in and he reminds them that Moses was just a tool in the hand of God. Moses was not the one that fed them. God fed them through Moses. But alas, they could not see who Jesus was because, again, they were just wanting the supernatural. They wanted more signs, more, more proof, more excitement, and more miracles. The manna itself was a sign. If you go back to the Old Testament, God giving that manna day after day was a sign that the true manna, the bread of life, was going to come. And that bread of life, once again, is standing before them, and all they're thinking about is the physical. We sometimes say seeing is believing, which means that if you physically see something, you will finally believe. 
Only in this day and age, with all the technology we have, I'm not sure that, sign, that saying is still appropriate. But regardless, with Jesus, it, it's really about the opposite. You see, they had seen the signs. They had seen plenty of miracles, and yet they didn't believe. So in actuality, it's reversed with Jesus. You have to believe, and then you will see clearly. And though they are still confused and no doubt still thinking in physical terms, they now ask Jesus for that bread. It reminds me of the woman at the well who Jesus has a dialogue with, and then she says very much the same thing. Sir, give me this water. And she was thinking physically. She wanted water so she wouldn't have to come back to the well every day. It'd make her life easier. And now these folks are saying, sir, give us this bread so that we can be satisfied daily. Which, of course, again, is not what Jesus is saying, but it does lead to our I am statement. They had, get, they had been given the manna in the wilderness for decades, but verse 49 says they still all died. And then verse 50 says Jesus is offering them living bread so that they will not die. So now let's look at that I am statement where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, which means he is the promise of abundant provisions. Now, there is a lot of theology in these verses, which again, we will not have the time to fully discuss. So I want to focus our attention on this promise of provision that Jesus gives. I'm the bread of life. If you take of me, you will never hunger, you will never thirst. The first promise is the promise of satisfaction. Again, verse 35, Jesus says, no more hunger, no more thirst. Naturally, he is not referring to physical food, although, again, that's the way they took it. Jesus promises lasting satisfaction if they will only trust in him. Now, is it too early, Mac, for me to use a Christmas movie illustration? Probably is, but I'm going to do it anyway. This living bread is the real gift that keeps on giving. It is far better than the jelly of the month club. It lasts not only in this life, but it lasts forever. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't need to daily depend upon Jesus. We certainly do, but it does mean that he provides us with everything we need. Therefore, he is the provision that we need not only in this life, but as we'll see, for the life to come. The second promise is the promise of security. The gist is that Jesus makes sure that those who trust in him are eternally secure. And his mission will not fail because all that the Father has granted him will indeed come to him. Now, I know we wrestle with the idea of the word election. I know we have some different beliefs on that, although we all understand, I hope, that the word is found in the Bible. It's just a matter of what it actually means. And I know we struggle with that word election and how it pertains to human responsibility. We all, of course, have been following the events in Israel, and we have no problem with the biblical terminology that Israel is God's chosen people. But this text reminds us we are God's chosen people as well. We are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. Have you ever thought about it in those terms? that believers collectively 
are a gift that God the Father has granted to the Son such that all whom he has granted will come to him and when we come to him, we will not be cast out. We see the opposite if we were to go on to verse 44. I mean the opposite way of saying it, but it's saying the same thing. In verse 44, it says, no one can come to me unless the Spirit draws. There is likewise a lot of misunderstanding on the doctrine of eternal security. But the bulk of that misunderstanding arises from our wrong perspective. We mistakenly believe that we are the ones holding on to God. Jesus says it is God's will that none who come to him will be lost. When you walk a child across a busy intersection, you instinctively ask or demand that that child put their hand in yours. And that child puts his little hand into your bigger hand and you safely walk them across the intersection. They mistakenly believe that they are holding on to you. But you know the truth. You know that if there's any danger, you can jerk them up with that one hand quickly and immediately out of that danger because the reality is it is you that is holding on to them. We are, of course, reminded that we must persevere in our faith, but the same truth to the other side is that God is firmly holding on to us, and it is his strength and his power that brings security. The third promise is the promise of resurrection. Jesus clearly says that we will all be raised. In fact, he repeats himself in the span of two verses with this particular promise. And if you read the rest of the dialogue, he says it more times than that. Now, of course, one statement from Jesus is enough, but he wants to emphasize this truth so much that he repeats it. And just like we mentioned last week, we will die physically, but of course, that's not the end. Again, verse 50 says that if we eat this life-giving bread, we will not die. It is not referring to physical death. Unless Christ returns before we die physically, we will die physically. But he's talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. We will all be raised. Every believer will be raised to live with Christ and be satisfied with him forever. And the final promise I want to mention is that of eternal life. He states that it is the will of his Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have or will have eternal life, or does have, I really should say. That's actually not a future tense verb. It is a future promise, but it is a present tense verb. We often think of the future element to that. I, I will have eternal life one day. No, the Bible says if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life now. You are already beginning Though obviously in a small way, you have already begun your eternal life with Jesus because he is the bread of life who abundantly promises his provisions. So those other ways we talked about, the path to prosperity, the way of works, a show of signs, those are misconceptions about who Jesus is and what he wants to do for us. And we need to look beyond the physical to the spiritual and see that he is offering us far more than those other things. However, these are not universal promises to everyone. They only apply to those who believe. I mean, bread, to be effective, must be eaten, right? You might look at it, but that doesn't nourish you. You might know how to make it, but that doesn't nourish you. You might know the 
nutritional uh, ingredients that go into that bread and how much it could help you, but unless you eat it, it does not have the desired effect. That's why oftentimes I hear this and sometimes even say it on hospital visits when somebody will say, I don't have an appetite and the family and I will agree, uh, you've got to start eating if you want to get out of here because it's not going to do you any good to have a tray of fruit in front of you if you're not going to eat it. Many of you have probably been to these all-inclusive resorts, or maybe you've been on a cruise where they have these elaborate buffets. Again, because of my past experience, I try to stay away from buffets. But I have been to some of those places where they have those elaborate buffets, and, and I'm not one to stay up late at night, but on our honeymoon, we stayed up till midnight just to go to the midnight buffet, just to see what it looked like. And they had desserts of all kinds of things, desserts decorated like, all. I remember a guitar-shaped cake. I mean, they had just elaborate desserts shaped like all kinds of things, such that occasionally you would hear someone say, that looks too good to, be, to eat, which I never said, because I understood that it was meant to be eaten. No matter how elaborate it is, no matter what it looks like, it is ultimately meant to be eaten. Jesus Christ has proclaimed himself to be the true bread from heaven. If he is to make a difference in your life, you cannot merely sit back and admire him. You cannot merely enjoy his promises in that way. You cannot watch as others enjoy the promises of God. You must personally partake of the bread of life. And then and only then are the promises for you. So you must commit your life to Christ, trust by faith in what he's done for you, and then rest in the promises of provision, not only for now, but for all of eternity. Jesus is indeed life-giving bread. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the time we've had to study your word this morning, and for those who have come, I am grateful for their attendance and their attention but I pray now that uh, we would seriously consider your claims, that it would not just be a, an hour we've spent looking into your word, but that we would turn our eyes toward you, off of the material and off of the physical, and see you standing before us, as it were, as the bread of life who offers himself to us, that we might have life both abundant and eternal. And for the many here this morning who already know you as the bread of life, may we rest in your abundant provisions and not get sidetracked by lesser things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. For our benediction this morning, I'm staying in John chapter 6 and just going to the end of this dialogue where it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are dismissed.